Si escucha a gay gente. Welcome everyone, you're listening to Daniel here on The D Report. Today I get an opportunity to catch up with a friend, revisit a conversation, the conversation topic being education. Today we'll speak with Alejandra. Before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, so my name is Ale or Alejandra, and I am someone who teaches. Alejandra, it's been a while since we've had a chance to catch up. Why don't we start by just sharing what you have been up to? I vaguely remember us chatting um, during a time when I just gotten my preliminary credential. And this was a big deal because I took a really long time to get it. There was five different attempts at passing the RECA exam. And just to recap, I have a education specialist credential, mild, moderate. So <laughs> the, this exam is the, the reading. Uh, I have to prove that I can teach how to read children English. And so this is a heavily based on phonetics. A lot of what you do in like kindergarten work nowadays um, used to be later, I guess. But the fact that I had a lot of experience or more of my experience was in middle school and high school, it just made, made it really hard. So it was a really big deal that I finally passed. And I thought that this was going to help me, and it did, as far as just gaining job security and being able to stay in one place for, you know, for a minute, um, understand the actual role of a teacher, or at least of a of a education specialist, and uh, what happened after that is I I moved around just for personal reasons uh, a little bit. So I got to teach sped in Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> uh, sort of randomly ended up there in a way because of my now husband who was doing an fellowship. So I learned a lot as far as, well, in that space, I got to create my own schedule. I got to really, I had my own classroom. I had a lot of resources. Um, and I was put in a place where I can also mentor teachers, which was really special. Yet it was also very difficult because I what I didn't realize is that more and more, you know, schools are really pushing and school districts in general, they're pushing towards um, having an inclusive program. And so what this means is, or their goal is inclusion. So what does that mean? It means that rather than having this model of having a special day class where you have children who have special needs in one classroom and sort of you're off to the side, you're doing your own thing, you are still meeting the requirements to graduate, but you don't really get to interact with your peers. And so 
more and more, you know, the looks of this and the feels of this, and especially with our, you know, our climate, um, as far as just diversity and inclusion and, and the lack thereof in many spaces, I think that it makes sense to push towards in making inclusive classrooms. So I think what, what this does is like it translates into uh, initially doing a really big disservice sometimes only because if the resources aren't set in place for all of the, the staff, so not just myself, but the, the entire staff of a school or of a group of teachers who are going to be, you know, taking in students who have very, very diverse needs um, and learning styles. If, if they're not going to be supported um, overall, then it's just going to, it can create um, very difficult classroom environment. So, you know, uh, it was, and in Cleveland, Ohio, also the uh, race dynamics were very uh, different than in LA. Um, and so it was interesting because I, uh, I had a hard time. I, ha I had a really hard time. Nobody really understood what it was to be, uh, you know, coming from a Mexican background or, you know, understanding what it means to speak Spanish. Um, I was a little different in that sense. And yet, because, you know, I'm light skinned, <laughs> I'm very much like white passing, right? Can be. So, you know, the, the dynamics sometimes between kids is so odd. And that, and that was, that was tough on top of like all the layers of like, well, I'm here to help you as a diverse learner. And, you know, it just didn't uh, help make and, and establish really strong bonds. So moving forward, just a few, you know, I think like one or two years, um, I was able to come back home and I started working for the school district here in LA. And that was nice. You know, I thought, okay, home territory, like all of this will be better. Um, and I, I learned, oh, oh, right. I have five years before I clear my credential otherwise I have to start over <laughs> no so five years from the moment that you get your preliminary credential you have five years to clear that credential and because I was out in Cleveland for a couple of years um, my my credential didn't translate to Ohio it's like one of the very few states I think like one out of two states in all the U.S. that doesn't accept California credentials um, but really what I'm, you know, I'm trying to share is like, I have these like timelines, uh, that I have to meet. So if, if I didn't clear my credential within five years, then I would have to go back to school and start the program over essentially. And I'm sure there's other ways, right? Like you can petition for an extension, things like this, but we find, because we finally moved back, I'm like, I have to work on that. So I was uh, very fortunate that I got to uh, go into a district that allowed, you know, this built in as a program. And I remember thinking, you know, oh, well, I owe it to myself too. I worked so hard on this credential. <laughs> Why not clear it? 
and why not, you know, make it my credential for a lifetime? And I went through the program. It was very special. I met a lot of great people. I think I gained a lot of mentorship, but it was interesting because during the program itself, my mentor just kept, you know, checking in with me and telling me that she was really worried about me. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm like, why? I mean, I'm worried about myself too, but you shouldn't know about that. Like this is personal. And she's like, no, well, just the way in which you talk about like, you know, special ed and just education, like you're, you're sometimes I hear comments that could border like just cynicism, like where things are just not going to get better. And she's like, that's, that worries me because it's a sign of burnout. And so, I mean, I, like I said, very, very lucky that I had great mentors. Um, but I mean, after that, I think we, this was a two-year program. So like, I, I started to just really let down my guard. And at that point I, I said, I started paying attention to everything that I was doing. And it was more of like, just trying to put one foot in front of the other, you know, I was, I was, I was struggling. Um, at that point I had a, I went into a pretty well resourced middle school. I think it's like one of the highest high, higher performing middle schools in like the San Fernando Valley. And, um, I was like, great. Like, you know, resources aren't a problem. We're going to, you know, it's going to be awesome. And I get to stay, right? Because as soon as I clear my credential and I hit three years, I'm permanent. So perfect. Well, I, um, I did hit my three years. I did clear my credential. And I also like got to the point where I knew that if I didn't exit, that my entire being was going to become, was going to be compromised, right? So like my ability to get up in the morning was really tough. Just like, seriously, like going, getting up out of bed was so hard. I've never experienced something like that. Um, I did realize like after spending a couple of years in Cleveland where you got like nine months of winter and like no sun. I was like, Oh, it's just my vitamin D. Like it's, it's just something else. Right. And so took care of that, you know, and still no, nothing. Like I just remember, um, not enjoying being present, like in, in the school setting. Like I just remembered feeling like so negative about um ah, just in general like the fact that I, I oh this is one great example you know I had my IEP caseload and writing sitting to write these IEPs was so hard it was like I would just sit there and stare at the computer and cry like I, I was like I don't know what to do. Like, I know what I'm doing. And in fact, I was being encouraged to utilize like a lot of the resources that, you know, 
that we had, like use a, use a gold bank and use this and use that, you know, um, make it easy for yourself, like create a list of accommodations that you typically use. And, you know, so I can become efficient. And although I felt like people were coming from a really good place, I just didn't feel right. Like I, I felt like if I was going to really help like this program where these kids were coming from special day cl classes in the elementary school, they were being put into um, like a cohort of with like two teachers, right? And, but they were following the gen ed curriculum. So it was like a sink or swim type of environment. And so you can imagine like the, the kids that like, swam like oh my gosh what a great program and then the kids that sang it was my responsibility like it was just so it, it was so hard like there was no support again from the district from from the parents I think a lot of times the parents didn't even know what they were signing their kids up for they just heard like inclusion that sounds great oh they'll get to spend time with their peers that's incredible but then when they're being asked to, you know, keep up with a, a gen ed textbook and like, you know, oh, we're just going to shorten assignments. And, and if that doesn't work for the child cognitively, then it's just like, uh, you know, being in that setting with 30 other kids is incredibly overwhelming. And um, I would even argue like traumatic. <laughs> You know, because if you're sitting there and like you're you're having to participate because that's part of your grade too, you know, these expectations that we place on children are really high. And I think that oftentimes we don't provide like little like little steps to get to where they need to be in general. And, you know, by the time they hit middle school, you're supposed to learn, you're supposed to know how to read, you're supposed to know how to write, like you know, all this stuff. And mind you, this is pre-pandemic, okay? So like, I'm over here, you know, just trying to figure out how to how to get by and, you know, it'll be better. It'll be better once I get my, you know, once I clear my credential, I can say whatever I want. And, you know, and then I, I realized like, I was saying everything I needed to be said, you know, <laughs> like, I didn't, I didn't like, I didn't hold back. Like, that's why my mentor was worried about me. <laughs> but I think she was worried because, you know, I was starting off maybe like in her, in her mind. And, you know, she didn't, like, she understood that I had worked like a lot before in education, but I don't think she realized like I had been in and out of classrooms I had taken on long-term subbing positions because I had all the credentials except for, you know, that one test. All the responsibilities except for like that one thing that like that salary essentially, you know? And so, I don't know, it was just really tough. Then the pandemic hit and, you know, we went home, we went online. And now all of a sudden, like, we got technology. And again, this is a school that like, I had, I had good stuff. Like I was happy about it, you know? I think to the point where um, I've noticed 
you know, having conversations with my colleagues, like, oh, I can't, you know, I would hear them saying like, I can't wait till we go back to normal. And I can't wait to, you know, um, things go back. So we go back. And then me feeling like it's not in my stomach, like, mm, like, no, I don't want to like, I, you know, and it wasn't that I, I didn't want to like, drive to the site like I had a the commute was not a problem it was just the fact that like I did not like want things to go back to the way they were although I understood and I and I had a lot of challenges just like I'm sure you've heard from other teachers like um all in all remote learning is not for everyone and there is a lot of, uh, I think, innovative and creativity, like innovation and creativity that happened during that time. And I think that that, that really like sprout, that sprouted something in me. I felt like that's what I was missing. Like I really felt like a lot of, a lot of people around me in the field of education were just kind of like, putting one step in front of the other and some people were able to make peace with that and they were I, I worked with a lot of like veteran teachers at this last school setting that I was at so again I had great mentors um and so people you know they were they were trying to coach me as like how to how to go with this long term um but I think I, I realized like I just wasn't going to be okay with a majority of people trying to push for things to go back the way they were. Um, one of like the biggest arguments that I would have with them, <laughs> I don't know if arguments is the thing, discussions with my, you know, vice principal, uh, who like oversaw the the SPED program was, you know, inclusion is not a program. It's a way. It's an idea. It's an idea of how you want to build this culture. You know, it's an understanding of how you're going to approach a student and a family and your staff and how you're going to like support them to make a more inclusive classroom and then school and then, you know, community, like, right? Like to me, it made sense. That's how it works. You support your teachers and you grow out, go make it into a school uh, goal. And then you go grow up from there. And I just felt, I felt like a lot of people in general, they just can't it's hard it's hard it's it's a lot easier said than done like this idea of inclusion of of really i don't know what do you think when you hear inclusion <laughs> i'm curious well i think there's a lot of things that come to mind for example i think the, the conversation about inclusion in terms of this phrase that um, is used uh, in the university system, particularly, but also plays out in uh, in corporate settings, and that's uh, diversity 
uh, inclusion equity. So that's what comes to mind at first. But I think the one that you're using is a, a slight difference to it. Because one of the things that I think comes to mind is the way that you spoke just right now about if the approach towards schooling is one that has an inclusion initiative. And if it's an initiative that is holistic, it's one thing. If it's an initiative where it's only visible in a specific set of classrooms, it's another. And I can see how this is difficult for anybody to try and navigate given that like, even if it was the whole school, I don't, we ha I don't think we have a society that is inclusive. So it makes it really difficult to, let's say that, let's say that you get uh, this magical setting where the whole, uh, the whole school holistically is inclusive of all the different learning styles um, that we have in our community. But what happens then? You know, what happens when you graduate? Do we have an inclusive society? I was, I'm teaching this one class called Engaging Difference, and I've taught it in other places, so it's had different names. Uh, but it's it's really um, a class that takes the students through the list of terms that we recognize, like class, gender, disability, ability, sexuality. And we go through these terms and try and make sense of them. And the last unit, really, like last week, was issues of disability. I was trying to just unpack the concept, not necessarily lead with like what's right and what's wrong, but in the social sciences, I think we've been working with a lot of these terms, like gender as a social construct, race as a social construct, and then it took us into this idea of is disability a social construct? And when we say is disability a social construct, what we mean by that is, um, is it something that, that is built by society that gives you that label and experience? And one of the students was really pushing back and saying it doesn't make sense because we can look at race and say that there's no genetic marker for race. So we can see how society invented it. But if I'm blind, I'm blind. If I'm in a wheelchair, I'm in a wheelchair. My, my legs don't work. That's not, that's not a social construction. But what if the social construction is what we do with the people's expression? So that like I had a student in another school who was in a wheelchair and she couldn't come to my office because my office didn't have a ramp. That's a disability created by the social context. If the building puts a ramp, she can come to my office. She can move all over that floor. And it was actually the first floor, which is ridiculous. The first floor, but it's an old building. So they used to build them higher and it has this like beautiful stairway. So the stairways are part of the architecture. They designed it that way. But for someone in a wheelchair, that's an obstacle. So the idea of inclusion, I think, I'm for it. I just question it in the ways that I think you were signaling. Is it, a, is it just one class? Is it a holistic program? Are we modifying the whole society? I think we have to decide um, for ourselves just 
where we're able to kind of cope with it. Because I was talking with this one student in particular, I referred to him again, because at, toward the end, he was talking about this question. He asked me, um, well, is disability about resources then? And I was talking about the fact that I use glasses now. And, and it's funny because when we started talking like, what, over 10 years ago, I didn't use glasses. I don't remember if you used glasses. Um, yeah, but, I've worn them since the fifth grade. <laughs> okay, all right. I just don't remember because my memory. Um, but I thought, like, now I need them. And I'm like, I, and, then, and I'm stubborn. I'm like, always forgetting them. <laughs> but I can't see the menu when I go to a restaurant. <laughs> anyway, so I was telling the student, like, it's about resources. And he said, well, is disability about resources? And I said, well, if I can't see but glasses would fix it for me. Glasses reduce my disability. So then inclusion to me would mean like give everybody glasses, give everybody a wheelchair, give everybody a ramp, like just build as much resources so that we can reduce these obstacles. Now, no matter how many resources I get, my eyesight is not the same when I was 25. That's that's a reality, but eventually, if I can't afford glasses, yeah, I, I will have a hard time navigating the society. I won't be able to drive. I won't be able to work. Yeah, where does that place me? And inclusion to me is recognizing that there's different needs in our society and supporting them as best as we can. But I don't know how that plays out differently like in the school setting in the way that teachers have a responsibility, they're placed with a responsibility that sometimes feels very unfair. Meaning, I don't know if you felt this while you were teaching, but like when I was teaching, actually my last year I had a, a classroom, it was a pilot program to meet students that had been retained. They, had, uh, they were repeating second grade and the majority of these students, I think uh, eventually were classified as needing special education services. But when they were in my class, they had two teachers, me and another full uh, teacher and one full-time uh, teaching assistant. At three adults all day long. And that was the attempt to intervene and say, well, like, if we just give them resources, it'll be different. But one of the things I remember thinking about is that inclusion, I think, I don't know, like, does it mean recognizing that we're all there together like having someone that's in a wheelchair in my classroom as well or someone that needs glasses or someone that needs a special resource teacher to help them navigate the material and i i don't know i i feel that i am kind of stuck with that question because the easy answer is the romantic in me that goes like inclusion means we we recognize everybody but then I think about my time as a school teacher and I had 21 students and would I have been able to help everyone by myself? If the philosophy was like, well, you get everybody in there. Like, no, I couldn't. I, I, I would not be able to do that. I might, I might actually be doing a disservice to a lot of these students who needed Let's say someone needed Braille. I don't know Braille. You know, I know that example is actually too dramatic, but I think no, that that kind of hints at that's what I'm saying, you know? 
Yeah, that's exactly what I was placed with. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So I don't know where we are. I mean, I think we're one of the things I, I feel uh, as I was hearing you speak is that um, I don't know if it's because I've heard you speak for many years, but I, 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 I hear a lot of depth of analysis in your, even in your, just the way that you spoke about that hesitation waking up. It wasn't that you were being lazy or that you were quote unquote just burnt out because you did it too much. No, I think you were seeing something that becomes embodied. Like you, you can't go back to a place where you feel you're like, this isn't right. And I don't know if that's what we were feeling, but I know that's what I was feeling because I left teaching after about four years of teaching and I went to grad school. So before we met in UCR, I was a public school teacher for second and third grade. And um, my last year was a second grade class with about 21 students. And the majority of them, I think uh, I worked with a, an amazing teacher. Her name is Miho Murai, who's a lawyer now. Um, we both left at the same time, which is funny because uh, the running joke was that that class broke us. Oh, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> which it wasn't. It wasn't that they broke us. Uh, mm. Like this class was offered on the matrix. You know how like we set up classes for the next year. We saw it and we were two ridiculously romantic idealist teachers. We were like, we want that class. 21 students that have that are going to repeat second grade. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we want that one. And we'll see what we can do. We're going to co-teach and we're going to have a, a full day teaching assistant. And um, it was an amazing experience. These students were amazing. And they were amazing in, in a weird way. You know how you talked about inclusion? They were included into the space of normalcy, if it makes sense. They weren't the bad kids. They weren't the slow kids, the trouble kids in our class because everyone had that designation. I mean, like when everyone is quote unquote a behavioral problem, there are no behavioral problems. That was our philosophy because we mm -hmm. couldn't complain. Like no matter how beautifully ridiculous, like running underneath desks, it was that's normal. That was my normal class. And we're like, as long as they do their work, as long as they're happy, as long as they're growing. But at the end, uh, we left. I went to grad school. She went to uh, law school. But was we she left. A special needs teacher too. She was. Uh, she did special education work. Uh, gotcha. And she now works in special education law. Got it. And uh, but we weren't burnt out. What I find like the, the like the the joke that around school was like the, that that class broke us, but it didn't break us. Uh, we left because we wanted to do more. In fact, I think it. I, I tell everyone, like, those were my best days of, of all my teaching experiences. I, I feel like I keep growing and I'm going to new places and I'm learning to become better as an educator. But those years, those four years as a first, second and third grade teacher in South Central LA, uh, just I'm always like in cloud nine. But I think to your point, what happens when you go to work and you see things not as a pessimist, but you're seeing that this system is more complicated than they want you to see it. Like they want you to just do your best with your 20 kids. And then you're like, but my 20 kids are hungry. And, and you don't want me to talk about why they're hungry or, or my kids are, are not getting the resources or they're being put in a path that doesn't acknowledge disrespect. What I mean by that is like, for example, um, I have a friend who works 
uh, with um, orientation mobility, low vision and blind students. Not cognitively delayed in any way, just they can't see. But they're in places that their education is not provided. It's like, oh, you're blind. You're not going to read. Like, no, that I'm blind, but I can learn how to read and I can learn calculus. I can learn everything. But but the question is, do we have a society where we allow the blind to work? Can 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 a blind person be my calculus teacher? They can technically, but why is it that I've never met? I've never had a teacher in college who was in a wheelchair. Isn't that weird? What happens to all of us that are in wheelchairs? Maybe we have a system, K-12, that's been not including us, as you meant. It's not about inclusion, but exclusion. But that's where I'm at. I feel very much like I'm very skeptical of inclusion, not because I don't subscribe to it. I just want to know, what do you mean by it? Like, are you just doing a lip service to it? Or are you really down to saying we want a society that tries to, to respect and acknowledge as many of us as possible? Oh my gosh, yes. No, I, I appreciate your long-winded answer. Uh, you you mentioned or you you said it so beautifully that the class that you've taught didn't burn you out. It, it or you know, it, it broke you, but it didn't, you know, it didn't break you. Uh, it's almost like I set you off on a different course because you wanted to do more you knew that somehow inside of you there was hope that there is something else out there and uh, I think yeah 100% I can relate to that I think you know uh, why if I had been if I had spent 10 plus years trying to get just to get a credential, right? Why would I want to leave it? <laughs> it just seems insane. It really does. Um, it's not something I was comfortable with. I think that I was almost forced to, you know, I didn't really have a choice because it started to manifest in, in different ways. Um, even just like coming home and trying to interact with my spouse and trying to be a good person altogether. Like that was starting to weigh on me. I, I wasn't able to do it with such ease because I know that I, I'm capable of that. I know I want to, right? I want to be able to, I don't want to be the person that gets mad because you cut me off in line or whatever, you know, it's just, I mean, it's nice that we have that history, right? It's like, I, I didn't recognize myself. I really didn't. And I felt like, yeah, um, the pandemic did a number on, on a lot of us who were still really trying to push through. And <laughs> during that time, I decided, well, you know, we're home. I'm gonna, I need something else to do, right? So I ended up taking like the storytelling class and writing out like this little commentary, I guess, on like March 13, 2020 hit. And I, you know, I had, we had to go remote and I loved it. <laughs> you know, the twist. Um, whereas most teachers 
were so focused on like how hard it was. I was motivated by all the possibilities. And like I said, again, it's not that I'm thinking like, oh, well, we all need to go back to remote learning or remote teaching. That is not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that the fact that my veteran counter teacher counterparts who had refused to learn a computer, <laughs> you know, two months before, now all of a sudden you had to learn how to play Kahoot and you had to learn how to, you know, make visually pleasing and interactive ways of keeping kids there. I mean, right? Like we really, I know that the range of need was was great. Like I cannot compare my experience to any other teacher because I really feel like, oh my gosh, the stories, right? I, I, I mean, we could probably spend a whole another hour, I'm sure, of stories you've collected. But for me, it was like, I was staying up making slides, interactive slides, websites, just so that my kids, see if my kids could engage more with an interactive calendar, see if that made it possible for them to get to class on time, right? If that's what they were uh, going to do, because again, a lot of things are out of our control. They are out of our control. Um, our job really as teachers was to do the best that we can possibly do. And, and I think that I felt like I just wasn't being met there, like halfway, right? Like uh, I was a co-teacher with another wonderful woman who um, we had one year of amazing co-teaching. And, you know, and then after that one year, because I did so well, all of a sudden I had to, you know, pilot this program and teach other teachers and like, you know, make the impossible possible. And it's like, I don't understand where that logic comes from. You know, it's hard enough to co-teach as you can probably remember, <laughs> but to, you know, to, to basically like, I mean, you know, and, and all why, because, oh, well, we have to meet this criteria. We have to, you know, cross our T's and dot our I's with the district. And that's why, you know, it, I think it's very tough because a lot of people who are in leadership and in, in, in our school systems are really, um, and I say a lot, but not all, okay, because I, I recognize that there's a lot of also amazing people doing great work who are pushing those boundaries and it's not easy because you need a job right you at the end of the day and this is who you're working with right like how do you keep your job how do you stay there and still create change I think it takes I mean sometimes it takes more than one person it takes convincing a larger community that this is what needs to happen right that maybe you know, and I think like you are, you spoke about glasses and a wheelchair. These are disabilities that you can see, but the vast majority of Americans have disabilities that you can't see. 
and these are the ones that I, I think make it really, really hard for all of us and myself included, right. To, um, to try and navigate because it's a matter of, and I can't generalize, but like, you know, if I have, I have a student who, who had, um, you know, a lot of emotional, the classification is ED, right? Like emotional disturbance. And these titles change too. But if one day he was willing to work with me and he did great and he was great at math, but then the next day he just literally didn't show up or he, you know, uh, I don't know, decided that he didn't know one plus one, like, you know, because he just wanted to, that's what he wanted to do that day. Like, how do you create a system that isn't working against this individual, this young man, this boy, right? And, you know, telling him like, oh, well, you have this semester to prove yourself. And if you can't prove yourself during that semester, then, you know, you're going to fail. That's tough. No, it's tough. And I think the part that is, I guess, easier for me, but not easy to, to practice it, but just easier to, to be in this position. And that's the one that, like, for example, uh, is situated in an academic context. So that, like, I've been teaching for over, like, 25 years. And I started as an elementary school teacher. And one of the things I remember of the shift once I left elementary school teaching and started teaching and whether it was community college or the UC or private is that I was able to speak about my experience as a teacher and reference it in a very disassociative way. Like I was able to see what I had done and critique myself. So for example, I remember this thing that I used to do, which was a, a, a Friday store where I would like, students would buy markers pens anything they wanted I would have a little store for them well the question is like well how did they buy it well I they bought it because I gave them a token for every time they did their homework every time they were good I gave them a token they had like a little thing and I even and if uh, I didn't have a lot of rules about going to the bathroom so if they just wanted to go to the bathroom they just had to drop a token and leave I didn't want them to ask me to use the restroom and I remember I was in class referencing this it was like a Chicano education class or something and I was telling them that I felt awkward about my experience because I never thought that I was there to teach capitalism but I was teaching them capitalism I was teaching them that you work and you get paid and you if you want something you purchase it now that's not necessarily off the record in fact that's what we're supposed to do on the even on the standards you know that's the standards. You're supposed to teach them about the market space and how to count and how to save money. And but I can, I'm being very sincere that that was not something I would ever say I wanted to do. Like I'm not interested in making capitalists out of my children. Even if I say, yeah, they should know how to how to spend their money and save it. Yes, but that wasn't what I was trying to do. I was just trying to have the students be somewhat responsible. And at the end on Fridays, I was trying to give them a treat. But what I'm trying to express here is that like the the distance allowed me to see that what I was doing wasn't what I thought I was doing. And I think that's how I hear you speak that like when we 
are in there. It's hard when you when you don't recognize your actions. Like, am I here just to make sure that some of us make it, others don't? Am I here to be a gatekeeper for this one student? Because that one student that, that works really well one day and not the next, someone's going to tell me this. Like, yes, that, that would not be a great employee. Because I need the employee to be consistent. And then you, Alejandro, would be like, well, Danny, I wasn't trying to make him an employee. I needed him to be successful academically. And But what if, our, what if we have a school system that is all, that its sole purpose is to just make us fit into the world of adults, into the marketplace, into the social sphere, into the political sphere. And there's no room for those of us that are off the spectrum. They don't want us. Our behavior is too erratic. We're too inconsistent. We ask for too much. Like, hey, can you install a ramp so I can go to work? No. Maybe I shouldn't hire you. And I think that's what I hear. And I know it's not what you said, but I find that difficult to have this conversation because sometimes it says, well, then what are we supposed to do? And I don't know what we're supposed to do. I just know that some of us, as, as you said, some of us are doing amazing stuff, work going in. Some of us are doing great work trying and others are just trying to stay afloat. And I'm not trying to judge anybody. I just know that I can tell the difference. You know, some of us are very tired. And if we could, we would leave, but we can't. And that's the, that's the most heartbreaking moment, right? Those when, you, when we meet ourselves and you go, why don't you leave? Because I have a mortgage or my children need um, health insurance, <laughs> you know? And I think that's where we're at because I think teaching is those places that are, I don't know, like I said earlier, magical. I, I, I hold a very beautiful memory and space to my time in elementary. I know that I'm technically teaching. I work with grad students now, but it doesn't feel the same. <laughs> it doesn't. Mm. I, I, it felt so real at the end of every day when I would come home. I was like glowing if, if my students learned their timetables or if our science project worked. Yeah. yeah. But I think I was also being I was protecting myself by also being careful not to open doors of analysis. Because I taught in South Central where my kids were hungry, where we went on, on visits because they didn't come and there was stuff in the family that just children shouldn't be exposed to. But that's not my, people, we said that that wasn't my job to save that child. But then, then why am I knocking on the door? Isn't that weird? So I think we're, we're placed in a really hard spot. And I think the field of teaching has always been that. I, the, the statement that I made about like the analysis of what's the purpose of school, it's not my own. It's like over 150 years old. Like education scholars have been looking at the purpose of school and saying, what, what was it designed to do? And you look at the early architectural designs of schooling, and it was to put us into the workforce to have two tracks. One of us are gonna go be the thinkers, others are gonna be the hands of labor. And I and think- And to assimilate, right? And to assimilate, yeah, definitely. That was the key part, right? So it feels weird to say, oh, that analysis is like over 150 years old, but you're like, hey, this is happening today. It's the same program. 
And I think that's where we're at, especially I think now that we, like you and I are sharing conversations as, as people that were teachers and um, it seems like you transitioned away from that space. So where are you right now? Yeah, uh, so I, like I mentioned, it wasn't something that I think I would have chosen to do had everything, had I figured out, I'm speaking like it's the past, but the truth is um, I haven't figured out, I haven't figured out how to continue to be myself in a K-12 setting. I can't, I haven't, I don't know. And you know, and the, and people said, oh, well, you're in the wrong school. Like, you know, figure out like where you belong, find your niche. And among the mentors that I had at this school, this previous school, you know, I was, I was encouraged. So, you know, if, if I chose to stay, she said to me, and mind you, this teacher had been teaching there for 30 years. Amazing teacher. I mean, truth be told, she really held the culture of that school in check. Like she, she's amazing. I need to reach out to her. But, you know, like she said, if you choose to stay, you'll have, you have, there's room for you to make some, you know, great impact because the school needs a change. And I mean, she's like, I'm about to retire. She's like, let's put it that way. You need to be able to like be, you know, be, be committed to that fight, but there will, there is room for it. And I can guide you. She straight out said that. <laughs> and then she said, and before I came into education and taught for 30 years, I ran my own businesses. I did. I ran rehab programs. She's like, I had a whole life and a whole career before I got into teaching. So she said, I know that wherever you end up, you're going to, you know, you're going to do great because your heart's in the right place. And so, oh, it's hard. Like even just kind of thinking back on it, like just how beautiful that conversation is because that, that to me is, a true educator. It's someone who doesn't treat you differently because you didn't do your homework or because you didn't show up or because, you know, you just don't talk to me the way I want to be spoken to um, or whatever. Like, I mean, as far as, you know, you gain the respect because you see people how they are. That's why, that's how. And, and I think like, uh, there's a lot of confusion around that type of space and mentorship versus, um, you know, the top-down model of like, sit there, quiet, I'm going to teach you. <laughs> and so I think that shortly after this conversation, you know, I started thinking like, well, yeah, it's true. Like this whole time, I've been chasing my credential. I've been trying to figure out how to, you know, be a teacher on paper and thinking that this is going to make it better. But the truth is, I've 
and, and especially like after COVID and it's like, if no one showed up to your classroom, like, well, are you a teacher that day? <laughs> Did you work? <laughs> you know, and it's like, that's when I think like the true work began, right? And it's like, oh, hey, just reaching out about so-and-so, trying to figure out they're okay. And during these times, it was like, I'm genuinely trying to see that they're healthy, that they're like alive and that's crazy, right? Like, ah, it's just sort of hitting that realization of like, what, what is important? What's really important? And, and I think that just couldn't make peace with grades. That was hard. That was really hard because it put me on this path of like, okay, well, if I'm going to quit, what do I do? <laughs> what do I do next? Do I go back to school and continue to like work on my grades, right? Um, to prove myself. Like that was really, it was a really, really tough moment. Um, and you're right. Uh, at the end of the day, I also just didn't, understand or I think that's where I am right now I'm trying to understand what being a being someone who teaches and that's another thing about it that I think language is super important there it's like someone who teaches doesn't always have the title of a teacher and and sometimes they will be your best teachers right They'll have impact in your life the way you had no idea. And so it's hard because forever, forever and ever, as far as like from the moment you met me at UCR, like I've been all about access, access and equity as far as education goes because it's the great equalizer, right? And then now I think I've finally made peace with the fact that I'm not okay. I'm just not okay with, like you said, the system that forces our children to, to be, you know, in this cookie cutter type of environment. Uh, I think it, it's created a lot of trauma, even like, as we've, as we've like learned, trying to continue to be in, act in this way even throughout like the, a pandemic it's crazy um and so I am you know I'm officially resigned from the district where I gained permanency I do like to mention that because <laughs> I was like yay and then I left you know um because I wanted to pursue creative spaces so what is it so I don't know what my title is truth be told like what is my title I don't know I still teach so I'm working um I'm working for a, a technology company and I teach technology if I needed a subject right <laughs> um I became really excited about technology as a way to create communicate and form spaces of accessibility. Um, 
and again it's like there has to be a human behind all of this technology and I have to continue working on that piece like it can't be all plugged in it can't it just doesn't work that way either you know at the end of the day we're like what makes us human is that we connect you know and then in, in my belief right like we connect to mother earth we don't you know if we forget that then all of this is in vain <laughs> right um and so yeah i guess i'm still in the teaching world but i have a little bit of freedom in the sense that i well freedom and not right because again like maybe there was no bills to pay if there was no health insurance that I needed to have access to if there was like you know in a perfect world maybe you could call me an entrepreneur or I don't know you know a mentor but I also find value in working with like people who are sort of the you know we align in that idea of like let's find some innovative ways to get something done like they the creative process is very it's not linear at all so it's almost like maybe like trying to find balance for me right now like moving all the way to one other side of like a designer a creator of some sorts to also trying to find making some structure out of that um and so i've been uh hosting you know friends family in very very curated spaces so like i'll give you an example and, and of course like this is not something i'm getting paid for but like dia de los muertos right coming up how do we gather in a way that's meaningful versus just to like party <laughs> can we make a community altar can we create um you know a menu that you know within our family that's important and significant to us that has that has like maybe again like a learning component like oh that's how is that how grandma used to make those moments I didn't know that. Like, you know, let's let's like passing on tradition is is a form of of teaching, and I think, you know, it's it's so important. I know that I'm preaching to a choir here, <laughs> but yeah, we're not gonna get paid for that. You know, maybe we're just never gonna get paid for that. So that's where I am right now. <laughs> Alejandro, I think this will be a good moment to pause. So I want to thank you very much for sharing this conversation. Thank you, Danny. I appreciate you. You have just finished hearing a conversation with Alejandra, an educator, friend. We shared our thoughts regarding the field of education, the practice of being in the classroom, philosophies of teaching. Although both of our positions might have been very critical, I feel it's important to situate them within a commitment to the field of education. I can't speak for Alejandra, but I can speak for myself that I am very critical, but yet committed 
into the field of education, particularly public education, to all those educators in the classrooms, and I think everyone knows that it is a field of work that is undervalued in terms of, of compensation and maybe even consideration for the labor that you do, that we do. But I feel that it is universally understood that teaching is a very important space. It is where we present the upcoming generation with the knowledge systems that we as adults believe is, are important. And those educators taking on that responsibility, we see you, we see the work you do, we are grateful, and we stand with you in strengthening the profession as well as the field itself, the schooling process. You've been listening to Daniel here on the Do Report. I want to thank you for tuning in. You can check out the archives of previous shows at dreport.org. Stay safe, stay strong. Join us again on Feature Conversations.